0: Good morning. We're in James, and we'll do 126 and 127 today. It took us about eight weeks to do the first chapter of James, which may seem a little extreme, but we're going to get there. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we love you more than life itself. You're our provision, Lord, our souls thirst to know you, for intimacy with you. We're desperate to be drawn near, closer to the throne room. Lord, as we come to this word, we know it's the breath of God, holy, inspired. Would you speak? Would your word be bread to our souls, Lord? We need you. We need you, Holy Spirit. It's in your precious name we pray all the saints say, Amen. Amen. This is Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 10 through 17. Isaiah wrote, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ears to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. And bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's cause. Now, Isaiah is prophesying to Judah around 800 B.C., and notice the first thing he calls the leaders of Jerusalem. He calls them rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Listen to the Puritan Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry said, There are many who are strangers, nay, enemies, to the power of religion, and yet seem very zealous for the shadow and the show and form of it. He's saying, there are some who are zealous to look religious, to practice religion, but their religion is meaningless and abominable before the eyes of God. Matthew Henry continues, this sinful nation, this seed of evildoers, these rulers of of Sodom and people of Gomorrah, they brought not to the altars of false gods. They're not here charged with that. They weren't worshiping false gods, but they brought to the altar of the God of Israel. "...sacrifices, a multitude of them, as many as the law required, and rather more, not only peace offerings, which they themselves had their share of, but burn offerings, which were wholly consumed to the honor of God, nor did they bring the torn, the lame, and the sick, but fed beasts, the best of their, of their flocks," he's saying, "...the fat of them, the best of the kind, they did not send others to offer the sacrifices for them, but came themselves before God, they observed the institute places," They didn't go to the high places, but in God's own courts. And they instituted time, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and the appointed feast, none of which they omitted. Nay, it should seem, they called extraordinary assemblies. They held solemn meetings for religious worship beside those that God had appointed. Yet this was not all. They applied to God, not only with their ceremonial observances, but with their exercises of devotion. They prayed, prayed often, made many prayers, thinking they should be heard for their much speaking. Nay, they were fervent and persistent in prayer. They spread forth their hands as men in earnest. Now, we should have thought these, and no doubt they thought themselves a pious and religious people. Yet they were far from being so. So Matthew Henry is saying, commenting on Isaiah's text here, they didn't worship Baal. God's uh, condemnation towards the people of Israel in this season was not that they worshiped on high places. It wasn't that they, uh, for in Malachi, for instance, Malachi will say that when the Jews come to the temple with sacrifices, they bring blind, uh, the blind of their flock, or the lame. And, and Isaiah says here, no, they're bringing the best of their flocks. They're worshiping on the right days and the right seasons. They're praying prayers that are earnest and long. But God says, I'll have nothing to do with your religion. God says, I hate your incense. I hate your feast," He says, stop trampling my courts. Stop coming in and out of my temple. I won't hear your prayers. And he says, I hide my eyes from you. We need to know that there is such a thing as worthless religion. God says on many occasions to the prophets... I don't know why we don't ponder these things, but we ought to. On many occasions to the prophets, God says to, to religious worshipers, I don't want anything to do with you. Your fast mean nothing to me. These texts, and I could show you many, these texts are intended to arouse a holy fear of the Lord in your heart and to cause you to ponder whether or not your religion is pure Is meaningful or whether or not your expression of your Christian faith is worthless? Is my practice of faith before God meaningful or worthless? Is my worship heard? Is God pleased with my living? Now, it was this concept that Dr. King, Martin Luther King, appealed to in his letters from Birmingham prison. Uh, he quotes Amos. You've heard this, but this is the exact concept he's appealing to when he quotes Amos 5:21 through 24, which was a contemporary of Isaiah. Amos prophesied, I hate, I despise your feast, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. When Dr. King sits in prison in Birmingham, he he quotes Amos here, and he is intentionally, Dr. King was a smart man, was intentionally nudging Christians and calling them to ponder whether or not these texts applied to them. Could Christians in the South, for instance, continue on in their worship of God and their singing and their hymns and their songs while they ignored Blatant injustice against an entire people group. Is there a chance that God looks on that kind of a religion and says, it's not meaningful to me? Those are hard questions to ask. But whether or not you like it, the the text of Scripture asks you hard questions. And the prophets like to cut straight to the heart. They're not men who kind of beat around the bush. The prophets cut. And so this morning, James is going to kind of appeal to these same themes. Exact same themes, and it's not my intention this morning to condemn anyone. My intention this morning is just to allow the text to ask the question of us. Is there a chance our religion is worthless? Is there a chance God is displeased with our worship? And again, I don't come with answers this morning. Just gonna let the text ask the right questions. Alright, let's read verse 126 through 127. I need to do a few things this morning to help us with context, to understand some of our own context in the way that we misunderstand themes. And then we'll do our best to unpack what James is trying to say to this Jerusalem church. James 1.26-27. If anyone thinks he is religious and he does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion... Unstained from the world. One, let's address the obvious cultural context that we live in and the way that we sometimes misinterpret these themes. We have parroted for a long time in our culture the phrase, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, I think we all understand what we mean when we say that. But fundamentally, Christianity is a religion with practice and expression. It is definitionally a religion. And there's no point in history for the last, you know, 2000 years of church history where religion as a word only carried negative connotation. And so there are lots of times where Matthew Henry, for instance, or get to the Puritans, they talk about your religion. And by your religion, they mean the expression of your Christian faith, your walk with God. And so when we hear the word religion, we automatically go to these ideas of being hypocritical we go to these ideas of being um being uh highly opinionated or stiff and what we do whether we acknowledge this or not is we allow a false dichotomy to begin to uh, kind of settle down into our thinking and the false dichotomy is this religious people pursue holiness and relationship people are gracious and pursue love now that's a that's a actually an awful false dichotomy. It's, it's not, it's, it's not love to deny basic holiness principles like honor your wife, right? It's not love to deny basic holiness principles about sexuality, like adultery is wrong, period. Men in the room, if you consider yourself a relationship person with God and a grace person and you just love and you're addicted to pornography, you are not loving your wife fundamentally oxymoronic, okay? So, um, the idea that that holiness and grace and compassion are two separate things, and we're not a religious people, we're a relationship people. We we all get what we're trying to say, but but there's some real error to that. The idea of holiness, biblically speaking, the greatest expression of holiness is love. So, Jesus says, although all is fulfilled in loving God... Honoring God, desiring to please God, and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so again, Paul hits this in in, in Romans 13. The idea here is that if my aim is to love my wife with all of my heart, to love her above myself, there's no way I can look at pornography. Or if if my aim is to love my children and to bless my children for generations to come, I, I won't be selfish with my finances or my time i have to invest my energy and so holiness and love there's not a dichotomy between the two they're actually totally and holistically dependent upon one another and we want to be a people who pursue holiness holiness does not necessarily mean that we all wear ties we want a biblical definition of holiness i think ties are from hell i'm teasing we we do need a biblical definition of holiness no doubt But we want to be a people who are passionate about holiness. Without holiness, no man sees the Lord. We want to be a people who are passionate about purity and to embrace certain practices and disciplines which help us to walk in holiness is not religious with a negative connotation. There's such a thing as pure and holy religion which has certain practices, certain disciplines and devotions. You ought to be disciplined in what you watch and hear. That discipline is not religious with a negative connotation. If you walk into someone's house and you watch, you're watching TV and something that comes on is perverse and they turn it off, that's not religious with a negative connotation. That might be a man saying, hey, my eyes can't afford to see that. I want to love my wife today. Do you mind if we turn this off? And we say, oh, that's religious. Christianity is not religion, it's relationship. There's some crazy sloppy thinking in those ideas. You guys okay with me so far? So... um. Yeah, clap for me. That's great. Uh, I'm teasing. teasing. Um, So the the first thing we want to notice is that when the text here in Isaiah and Amos and James, those are the three we've looked at so far, talk about religion. It's not using the word religion the way that modern uh, 21st century Christians use the word religion. It, It means a pure expression of your Christian faith. So what we've learned so far from Isaiah and from Amos and from James is that there is such a thing as worthless religion, an expression of disciplines, an expression of worship, uh, a getting up to go to church on the Sunday morning, a tithing, a listening to worship music, a practice of faith that God calls worthless. You can have the disciplines and not have the heart, and and that can be empty. And so so far. We are dealing with the fact that we understand that James, again, writing like Proverbs, right? And Proverbs compare and contrast is such a big thing. Wisdom literature. He's contrasting worthless religion and pure, undefiled religion. Does this make sense? Okay, let's talk about textual context again. We'll talk about the, the first century Jewish church that, that James is writing to. We said last week that the second half of the first chapter of James deals with an issue that we can find throughout the text and the issue is this the Jerusalem church has a measure of contention they're fighting with one another there's some bickering there's some gossip there's there's some disagreement and so James, last week, remember we talked about this idea of being humble enough to listen, to receive correction, and the church needs to allow their tension, their rubbing, to catapult them in discipleship, rather than allow their tension, their fighting, and their rubbing to bring division, right? We said that last week. Just nod. Yes, we said that, okay. Um, so, so now, he still has this idea in mind, and so now listen to James saying, If any man think he is religious, but he refuses to bridle his tongue, he deceives himself. Pure religion is to care for the orphan and the widow in their distress and not be polluted by the world. In one sense, James is saying, let's just take the time to get this out here now. James is saying to a church that's fighting, you're spending all of your time and energy bickering, gossiping about one another, throwing stones at one another. Why don't you close your mouths and take care of the orphans and widows? And that feels really harsh, right? But that is, that in one way, that's very much what he's saying. That, you, that you're, you, as Christians, you're way too concerned with who's right. You're too concerned with telling stories about who said, she said, he said. And all the while, you're spending all your time doing this, and there are people who sincerely need care that you're ignoring. And James is saying, that to me sounds like worthless religion. first let so so there's the context okay there's there's what James is addressing the first thing he says is anyone who thinks himself religious who does not bridle his tongue deceives himself and his religion is worthless do you think of yourself as religious it's what the text intends for you to question do you consider yourself a christian who's faithful to the gospel are you faithful Do you attend the gathering of the saints? Are you faithfully uh, attending church? Do you tithe? Do you give of your energy? Do you practice spiritual disciplines? James said you should do all of these things. These things you should do. But if you attend church, if you serve, if you read scriptures, and yet you refuse to bridle your tongue, again, the context here is you spend your energy and your time devouring one another. That religion may be, before the eyes of God, worthless. James has the prophet's edge here. James is letting all of his prophetic juices hang out. <laughs> prophet's sting. He says, bridle your tongue. We'll dive deeper into James' ideas of the tongue in, in the coming passages. He's going to talk a lot about the tongue. But the idea of bridling the tongue is interesting. It's an interesting thing to think about right off the bat. You bridle a horse, right? A horse that's not broken, that's unbridled, can be strong and wild and energetic and totally useless, right? You just get out of the thing's way. The same horse with the same strength, the same energy, the same focus when it is bridled becomes a, a great strength and tool. And so James is saying very much the same thing. If you just let your tongue do all of this, all that energy and all that wild strength is destructive and useless. But when you start to measure your words, sometimes close your mouth, then the tongue, when you do speak, can become a profound strength. Do so you hear what James is saying here a bit? Um, when, I, when, when someone who talks too much, gossips, um, when, when they talk, you know, we, we say stuff like their words don't carry much weight. Do you know what, you, you know what I mean by that? Their words don't carry much weight to me. But when someone spends their energy and their time sincerely loving Jesus, laying down their life for the gospel, when they care for the poor and the widow and they give, when they're sincere and then they speak, I bet every one of us shut up and we shut up and listen. because, Because words carry weight on the basis of the character of the speaker. So James says, leave your tongue unbridled and spend your time and your energy biting and devouring the saints. That's worthless religion. And you deceive yourself. What does he mean by saying you deceive yourself? He's saying, you continually go through the motions of showing up from church, of tithing, of praying, and singing. That's what Isaiah is saying, right? You pray long prayers. You trample the courts. You bring sacrifices. You show up to worship. You do all of the things. And yet God says, I don't really want anything to do with it. And James is saying the exact same thing to his church. Again, feels harsh, but let's just let it sting. James is saying to his church, you're doing all the things, but because your heart just bites and devours... God doesn't want anything to do with that. You deceive yourselves by going through the motions of the faith. So again, with wisdom literature, the the style, the genre of this epistle, there's always a comparing and contrasting. And so... James is comparing and contrasting worthless religion and pure and undefiled religion. And he's obviously calling us to lean towards what he calls pure and undefiled religion. He says, now let me show you what, what, what a pure expression of Christian religion looks like. What real devotion looks like. And he does this. He first, he takes caring for the orphan and the widow... And then he yokes it to or ties it to a purity of heart, a holiness. So caring for the orphan orphan and the widow, visiting the orphan and the widow in their distress or in their affliction. And then he says, and not being polluted by the world. So compassion and, and a selfless care for other people and a pursuit of holiness. Okay, Western culture wants you to pick one or the other. I'm telling you, you must pick both there are some things in the Christian life and Christian faith that are not, not meant to be straddled. You don't straddle the faith. You pick both. There's not an either or. We love the Word of God and the Spirit of God, period. Just pick both. And so, so James is saying here, you must choose compassion and you must choose holiness. You don't get to pick either or. Now first... Pure and undefiled religion. That, that, that Greek there means untainted, unpolluted, without fault. Pure religion. And then remember that he says that the Father considers pure. That the Father considers pure. That's actually what matters is what God thinks about your religion, right? The idea of deceiving yourself is being so focused on what you think about your religion. I've got to care at the end of the day about what God thinks about my religion. When I stand before God on the last day, will I hear, hear, well done, good and faithful servant. He will be my judge. Paul says things like, I don't even judge myself. Just waiting for the day when God will judge me. And so, so, one, pure religion that God considers pure and faultless is this. First, to care for the orphan and the widow. Now, notice again, this is the same language that Isaiah uses in in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. This is thematic throughout all of the Old Testament. And if you can actually imagine this, like James read the Bible. So rare in our day. (laughs) Okay, so James is appealing to these themes. He is saying, in every society, first... There are are two groups of people that are vulnerable. These two groups of people transcend every generation. Technological advancements don't do anything to fix this. There are two groups of people that Christians must care about. Period. The first group is widows. The second group uh, would be orphans. You don't get to choose to ignore them. Christianity, for all of its history, has never ignored them. Do you understand that, like, the idea of a hospital, idea of an orphanage, these are fundamentally Christian organizations, born from Christianity. Like, Teresa of Calcutta did not care for orphans because of her atheism. Okay? Like, found in the text of Scripture that she must obey God's commission. And in every society, these groups of people exist, and God commands of His church that you care about these two groups of people. Psalm 68, verse 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So God in all of his holiness, strength, zeal, purity, the terror of God's great majesty. He calls himself the father to the fatherless and the defender of the widow. Why then is God particularly concerned with the orphan and the widow? Well, that should be obvious as we begin to unpack. The orphan and the widow both have lost the the male Headship, the provider, the protector. And God, the, the father, we talked about this before, fathers and husbands, um, there are some ways in which our roles are intended to reflect the nature and the character of God. We're, we're called to be good fathers because as by fathering my children with love, care, compassion, intentionality, I am showing them what God is like. So when that role is removed, husbands, the same way, you're to love your wife as what? Christ loves the church. So in my loving my wife, caring, protecting, providing for my wife, I am expressing the love of Jesus for His church. Now when those roles are gone, the father and the husband are removed, God is particularly concerned with the well-being of the individuals left without that covering. He's particularly concerned. Two, I, I... I mean, we're talking prophetic stuff here. We're talking prophetic edge. Let's just be harsh, okay? We already went there, right? We've done it. Let's do it. Here we go. Um, I'm not the center of God's universe, okay? And so God in His holy habitation looks on something like 7 billion people alive today and sees a lot of suffering. God is not sitting on the throne with me as the absolute center of all of His thoughts That's a Western idea that's really garbage too. He sees me. He loves me. He knows the hairs of my head. He's fully devoted to me. All of those things are beautiful and true. But God also sees millions of individuals suffering. And, And what he expects of me, not just expects, but demands of me, is that I care about people other than me. If I'm not the center of God's universe, then I cannot be the center of my own. If I call myself a worshiper of God, while I make myself the center of the universe, maybe I'm not worshiping Him, maybe I'm worshiping me and asking Him to participate in my worship. And so we say things like, and here we go, we say things like, you should really, and I'm, I'm just being straight, you should really go on a missions trip and care for orphans and widows. And you should, man. Uh, we should care about orphans around the world, period. There are orphans in our community, around the world. We should care about them. But we say, you should care about them. It's so rewarding. I don't really care what's rewarding to you. Stop. Stop. We're so motivated by selfish ambition that we say, hey, if you, if you go and care for orphans, maybe you feel better about yourself. Nothing in the text cares about how you feel about yourself. You guys, you guys hear my heart here? It's, it, we, it, it is fulfilling to care for people other than you. Imagine that. But, but the motivation cannot be how I feel about myself. And, and so for us in this season of life, caring for people, I'm not, we're not doing the things we're doing as a family because we want to feel fulfilled. Do you know, even with my biological kids, do you, do you know there's nothing fulfilling about waking up in the middle of the night to kids crying in your ear? <laughs> Work. And, but the concern cannot be about what makes me feel like a better person. The concern must be that God cares for people who are suffering. He expects his people. He requires his people to care about the things he cares about. Now, I don't have a clock. We're having technology issues today. Can you tell me what time it is. Ten o'clock on the dot. Okay, I got to about eleven thirty. You guys good with that? Um, and okay, I got some time. Let me let's let's do a little application just a step further here. In our society today, with the false dichotomy of Um, religious people who care about holiness, and then the compassionate people who care about suffering, that's expressed oftentimes with a very shallow lens, that's expressed towards what we call liberal Christianity, mainline liberal churches, and then sometimes you talk about um, evangelical churches that care more about matters of holiness, And the the mainline liberal churches will say, those churches don't really care about people. Um, And and I want to say a couple things. Number one, evangelical is not a political description. It's a doctrinal one. Okay, So when we call ourselves an evangelical church, we're not consigning ourselves to any demographic or political view. We're consigning ourselves to a doctrinal view. The doctrinal view of evangelical means, I believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father lest they come through Him. The term evangelical... is defined by the Greek term euangelion, which means gospel. So what's happening here, is some are leaning this way towards liberal Christianity, and they're saying, look at those evangelicals. And I'm saying like, what, we believe the gospel? Can you be a church without believing the gospel? Just might as well go to the Rotary Club. I bet they have better food. Now, and, and so we have, these, we have these churches, I'm just shooting straight, I'm, I'm in that mood today, okay? Uh, my football team won this weekend, so I'm feeling good. Uh, the, uh, we have these churches who will take these kinds of text. okay? Care about the orphan and the widow. And what they do is they, and this is honestly, if I'm just being really straight, this is coming from our sociology departments in our universities. We take these texts, orphan and widow, and we now make it a category. And the category is something like the marginalized. Okay, and that, that so far that's actually okay. Like the scripture definitely talks about the marginalized, for sure, no doubt. But you take what, what we're doing with our, we're allowing our sociology professors to define for us what the Bible means about marginalized. And what we do is we take marginalized, and now we're defining it through modern sociology, which says that the marginalized in our day in particular, just shooting straight, are LGBTQ plus people. And that in order to be faithful to this text, which says care for orphans and widows, it now means that you must endorse LGBTQ plus views and values. Because we're going to stand up and hold this text and say, look at you evangelicals, you don't care about the orphan and the widow. Now, I'm fine with that so far. Let's talk about caring about the orphan and the widow. But the, but the idea of the orphan and the widow, again, is, is, is a vulnerable, financial abuse issue that we should be thinking about. Now, if you can show me, y'all listen to me careful because I don't want you to send me an email later uh, un- unwinding what I just said. If you can show me any LGBTQ plus person who is an orphan or a widow or has been violently um, disposed or is, or is losing a job on the basis or is being beat up, I will gladly stand with any individual who is being degraded or belittled um, and defend them because I believe all people are created in the image of God. But what modern sociology says is that to disagree with someone's sexual lifestyle is somehow now for me to be the oppressor and to not care for orphans and widows. And so what we need to do, and golly, it's like, don't even put this online today. What we need to do is people read this text, and by this text they mean if we don't have a rainbow flag on the front of our church, we're not faithful to the Scripture. And, like, at what point did orphans and widows become endorsing your political views and not being allowed to disagree? I will defend your value, anyone's value to life again. Transgender individuals in our community should should never be physically harmed, should not be belittled. But I'm allowed to disagree with you. I'm allowed to disagree with you guys. And I do. I think some of you guys are just a, the dullest crayon in the box, okay? <laughs> But what what you do when you embrace these ideas now, that's like to disagree with people is violence. That's, That's a modern idea. To disagree with someone is violence, and I'm acting upon and oppressed people. What you've really done is said, hey, you're not allowed to preach anymore. Caring for the orphans and the widows means you can't preach the Bible. And now that's illegal in some countries in Europe already. To to talk about sexuality at all and in any negative light concerning homosexuality is illegal. And we just need to be we need to be smart enough to hear that and and recognize the twisting and the bending that's happening. All right, off that pedestal. So can orphans and widows be a category in which other individuals may fall into? Right. Or, because the idea is not just orphans and widows. It can be uh, the oppressed and marginalized. I'm okay with that language. So, for instance, in the civil rights movement, could you say that to not care for African Americans who are being treated as less than was to ignore the plain command of Scripture? I would say, yeah, I'm with you. That is, that is a plain injustice that is, that is a command of Scripture to acknowledge. Um, but we want to be careful how we apply that. And we don't allow modern sociologists to be begin to define what the Scriptures mean. So from there, he requires of you, God requires of you that your, your personal comfort is not the most important thing in the universe and that you're to be people of charity. Charity is a biblical word. Charity is a historical Christian word. It means to, to love with acts of expression, to care for. It's why we use charities to mean organizations that care for orphans or widows. You are, you are to be people of charity who don't just profess to care about something, but to actually care about something. Um, and... The, the greatest jab at the church today is that we only care about life in the womb and we don't care about life after the womb that, that is um, that statement is documental you could document that that statement is erroneous from the start again hospitals were born from Christians um, the orphanages in our nation are Christian the the pregnancy centers the you know, Do you want to know who gives the most money to downcast people in the world? It's Christians. Okay, so that statement is garbage, number one. But I'm okay with even owning it. If, if the, the world wants to say we only care about life in the womb and we don't care about orphans and widows and life after the womb, I, let's, let's pull up our bootstraps. Get my hands dirty. I am as anti-abortion as any person in our nation, period. I'm as anti-abortion as you can go. Also got my hands dirty and caring for orphans and widows. And do you know what I'm saying? Like, again, I choose both. The idea that they're pushing is that you have to choose life after the womb and you can't choose life in the womb. I choose both. And Christians should have a little bit of rebellious zeal in their hearts that says, watch me do you, bro. I'll do more. I'll sweat harder. I'll bless. I'll care. I'll love. I'll give more money. I will serve with all I've got. Watch me. Now, from there, the second thing that James is beating at is caring for orphans and widows, which we must do, just to lobby again before you. um, We are going to continue to press towards caring for uh, the foster care system in our region. You can still take classes in our church on Saturdays, become a licensed foster parent. There are lots of issues in our church you can jump in and help with. I want to just nudge that. We need to continue to press Into those issues. The second thing he's going to say is you should not be polluted by the world. So here he he intends, uses the word world, cosmos, to communicate cultural ideas and ideologies, the agendas and values of culture. You're not to allow culture's perspectives of holiness, culture's perspectives or values of life to infiltrate your own. Just because culture lives sexually rampant, culture dresses a certain way, culture talks a certain way, those things do not begin to infiltrate your lifestyle. Just because you live in the world doesn't mean you can be of the world. So again, I'm running out of time, but let me just make the point really clear. James is saying, charity, compassion, selflessness, you are not the center of the universe. There are people who need your love and support get after it. Two, you are called to holiness, you must choose both. Anything short of choosing both is worthless religion to James. I didn't say it, he did. And ultimately what all this means is how how much do we really want to be Christ-like? How much are we really after Christ likeness? To look like him to our community. Jesus stopping for children. Jesus caring for people who don't look like him. Totally holy. Radically holy. Looking Pharisees in the face and saying, You whitewashed tombs. (laughs) Look, Look clean on the outside, but inside you're perverse. Jesus radically holy. Radically loving. And you have one commission. Follow him. Love Him. Look on His beautiful face and be enamored with all that He is. Religion that is not Christ-like is worthless. Let's get after really loving Jesus, modeling Jesus, reflecting Jesus, cherishing Jesus, holding Jesus up as the premier pattern and design of what it means to be a man or woman of God. We must care about and live like Jesus. Anything else is not Christian. I don't want worthless religion. I don't want worthless religion. Are you content with worthless religion? Why don't you stand to your feet? We'll pray over the word. And, and just we're just going to ask God to penetrate our hearts, man, that we, we would really wear this today. And then we'll move into a time of ministry. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we hear the sharpness of this word. Lord, this, this text, these passages of Scripture, they cut, they challenge us. And Lord, we talked last week about being a people who let your word have its way with us. And so our hands are open this morning. We ask that this word would have its way with us. May we grow in Christ's likeness May we choose both compassion, selflessness, Caring for the downtrodden. And may we choose holiness, purity. Come on, church. Let's just tell them. We want to look like you, Jesus. We want to be like you, Jesus. I want to be like you, Jesus. Help us, Holy Spirit. It's in your holy name we pray. And all the saints say Amen. Amen.